really excited about the series that we're in, and I'm so glad you're joining us for this. We're talking about transforming pain into purpose. And this is the third message in the series, and you can go back to our different uh, media uh, things, whether Facebook, YouTube, or whether to watch the previous ones, or re-watch some of them, or share them, as Pastor Linda said. But we're talking about transforming pain into purpose. And it's tied to the theme for the year, where God, out of a covenant relationships, speaks to his people in Joel chapter 2 and verse 25. And he says, I will restore you. I love that. The intention, the heart, the commitment of the almighty God in a covenant relationship with us, who says, I will restore you. When you think about it, the fact that he says, I will restore you, means that these people have faced pain, loss, disappointment, frustration, add anything else you want to it. And God says, I'm going to restore you. Without those real things that all of us encounter in life, there actually wouldn't be anything to restore. You see, God wants us to walk in victory. But to walk in victory, we've got to over come some things in order to be an overcomer. And today I want to take a lesson out of King David's life. In fact, it's before he's king. He's anointed as king. And I've entitled the message, Attitude, when it's negativity, or when you feel that you've been betrayed by them. And it's even worse when it's somebody close to you. In fact, David says this, and in fact, Jesus quoted this passage as well in Psalm 41 and verse 7 through 9. All who hate me whisper about me, imagining the worst, even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food and has turned against me. What do you do when you're caught up in someone else's bad choices, perhaps even sinful choices? How do you respond, whether they intended to hurt you or not? Suddenly you're caught up in what's going on in their world. And the reality is when it comes to life, it is not a matter if somebody will hurt you, but it's a matter of when somebody hurts you. And I'm not even ascribing malice or intent. Sometimes they don't even realize the amount of pain they cause you by their choices. The reality is if we hang on to that hurt, we become people who hurt others. You've heard the saying, hurting people hurt people. But hurting people can also trust God and become healing people if they let God transform what's going on in their hearts and in their thinking. And if you don't let God transform your pain, then you will inevitably become someone who transfers that pain, that brokenness onto others. And we've all done that, again, not intentionally necessarily, but out of our brokenness created pain in somebody else's life. But let's come back to this thought of stealing the spear, this illustration that we're going to draw from the real story of King David. And David faced a number of giants. 
I know you go, no, 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 excuse me. He only faced Goliath. Yeah, he faced the physical giant of Goliath. And in no way do I want to diminish that or minimize the courage, the faith that he had, the trust that he put in God as he ran to face Goliath. But it was a battle that took half an hour, maybe a little bit less in terms of the lead up to it. The actual encounter was over in minutes. But what about the giants of despair, of fear, of betrayal, of mistreatment, of bitterness that tried to grip his soul because of the treatment that King Saul extended to David. Those went on for years, that betrayal, that whole thing of Saul hunting him down unfairly, of accusing him of things that he'd never done. That went on for years. And I think in many ways, they were bigger giants for David to overcome than dealing with Goliath. And it all started, ironically, with him slaying the giant Goliath. And I might have been thought, well, that's it, done and dusted, happily ever after. But that very thing, that very victory actually led to a series of disappointments, betrayals, and David entering into a wilderness period in his life. When the men were returning home, this is 1 Samuel 18 and verse 6 and following. When the men were returning home, after David had killed the Philistine, the woman came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and with dancing and joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres, a harp. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands but David but David he's tens of thousands and notice Saul's response the seed that gets dropped in his heart as he is caught up in the horror of comparison instead of celebrating the victory he's now thinking about the words yes he's been acclaimed as slain thousands but David tens of thousands And Saul was very angry and this refrain displeased him greatly. And instead of dealing with that, Saul lets this thing fester in his heart. His imagination begins to go wild, imagining all sorts of things that David is up to, despite the fact that David is his most faithful, loyal servant. And in his imagination, Saul begins to write a false narrative about David. And the story, 1 Samuel 18 verse 9 says, from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And the next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He, that is David, was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. The harp used to soothe Saul's heart. And Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. The irony is that later there'll be two opportunities that David will have to kill King Saul. And he doesn't act on those opportunities. But here's the 
aggression based on what's been fermenting in Saul's mind about David, this aggression to kill, to pin David, to take this spear and kill him. You see, the enemy doesn't want you to walk in victory. And if he can't defeat you in your circumstance, David had overcome the circumstance, he will try to contaminate your heart. And one of his favourite weapons is the weapon of offence. I'm offended. The weapon of offence. Jesus said to his disciples, Luke 17 and verse 1, it is impossible that no offence should come. And he's not talking about a light offence. He's talking about something really deep that will cause somebody to stumble. He doesn't condone it. In fact, there's a dire warning attached to it. But he says it's impossible. You're not going to get through life without something, someone causing you a deep offence. So what are you going to do about it? How are you going to handle that giant of offence? Will you let it fester? Will you let your imagination be caught up? Will it become something bigger than it actually is? And I'm not minimising some of the pain that comes out of disappointment and betrayal and how other people treat you or talk about you or whisper about you. And as we talked about, the one that you shared fellowship with, had a meal with, is now the one whispering and spreading rumours and false accusations. What do you do when somebody hurls one of these spears at you? How do you respond to it? Our natural tendency is to pick up the spear and throw it right back. Well, you say that, well, then I'm going to, and you betrayed me, and therefore, it's our natural carnal tendency to do that. But God doesn't want us to react to things He wants us to respond to them based on what God's word says, based on the voice of the Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us and helping us deal with this. I love something that Charles Swindle said. He said, I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are We are in charge of our attitudes. When there is an opportunity to retaliate, when our attitude is negative towards somebody else because of what they've done to us, God says, well, wait a minute, you've got a choice. You can choose a different attitude. You can choose a different response. And I'm not saying it's easy. This is a battle with a giant of bitterness, of unforgiveness, of the desire to take matters into our own hands. The Bible calls that vengeance and God says, vengeance is mine. I will deal with this. And I guess there's a thought, you either deal with it yourself or you trust God to deal with it, even if he doesn't do what you would like him to do to that other person. Offense is a a bait that the enemy uses to lure us into the trap of unforgiveness and bitterness. In fact, when it's spoken of, and Jesus spoke of offence and forgiveness, it's the word scandalon, which literally speaks of a trap where the bait is set there and the animal comes in to get what it thinks is a morsel, something tasty, something that, oh, I'm going to get them. Oh, I'm so glad that happened to them, that tasty morsel. And now suddenly the trap shuts and you're caught in something bigger. 
in something that begins to eat at your own soul and trouble your mind. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 and verse 15, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no bitter root grows up and causes trouble and defiles many. You see, whatever's going on in your heart, you can't keep it to yourself. It's going to spread. And the key is not self-will. You, you do have to engage your will, but it's engaging the grace of God. It's embracing God's grace and saying, Lord, let me be a person who experiences grace and extends grace. I want your grace to be the preeminent thing. See, there's a conversation that goes on in our head when we deal with disappointment that comes from other people's bad choices, sinful behavior. There's a conversation that goes on in our head of how we're going to respond how we will retaliate, what, what feelings we have. And feelings are not our choices. I want to say that again. Feelings are not our choices. Thoughts are not your choices. They can be there and they're a giant that you have to deal with, but they're not your choice. And eventually, if you make the right choices, your feelings and your thinking begins to line up with your choice to be a person of grace, to be the peace maker. But who's whispering in your ear? What's the conversation in your head? As we go back to the story with David, David has to flee from Saul because Saul's intent is to pin him to the wall with a spear to kill him. And eventually he gives the order that David needs to be killed. And so David is now fugitive on the run and he gathers around him a band of men. There's up to 600 mighty men that end up aligning themselves with David. And Saul's on one of his campaigns hunting David again. Never mind dealing with the real enemy of Israel, the real battle, the Philistines. And David is hiding, the Bible says, in the region of Geshimon. Geshimon, and it literally means a wasteland, a wilderness. And Saul's actions had made David a fugitive, driven out of society, deprived of the normal comforts of being in a community, of having a home, of raising his family. He's living literally in a wasteland. And it's more than just physical. It's a kind of spiritual wasteland. He can't go to worship. He can't do the different things that would have been normal for him to do. And we pick up the story, 1 Samuel 26 and verse 2. So Saul went down with 3,000 select troops to search for David there. Somebody had betrayed David again, whispered, oh, he's hiding in this region. So Saul gets 3,000 crack troops to hunt David down. Can you imagine what's going on in David's heart as he's hiding in the region of the Judean wilderness, a mountain desert is, is what it is. And then he comes across the camp of Saul and the whole camp, all three other men are in a deep sleep. In fact, later on in the story, the Bible says the Lord caused them to sleep. And that's an interesting thing. It's the same word for sleep that was used of Adam and Eve when God took, sorry, of Adam, when God took Eve out of him, he put Adam to sleep. It's a deep, deep sleep. 
And David could have thought, oh, he has the opportunity. You see, sometimes in life it'll look like the enemy gives you an opportunity to take vengeance and you can say, well, God delivered them into my hand. And so David says, who's going to come with me into the camp of Saul? And so one of his men, Abishai, says, I'll come. So David and Abishai went to the army by night and there was Saul laying asleep inside of the camp with his spear, the very spear that he'd hurled at David, the very spear that by which he'd tried to kill him and pin him to the wall. And this spear is stuck in the ground near his head. What an opportunity. And David's soldier with him, one of his mighty men says to him, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike him twice. I want you to notice if there's even the thing that David could have said, well, I didn't do it. He did it. That The guy's asking to take full responsibility to pin Saul. He, he's collaborating. What's David going to do? And the reason I'm talking about what's, who's whispering in your ear, because in this instance, while everybody's asleep, I'm sure they were whispering. This was not a loud conversation. Let me do there's the spear, I'll pin him down. It'll be one blow and you'll be set free. You'll be King David. Do you have somebody, the enemy, whispering in your ear? But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Yeah, but the Lord's anointed, he's not behaving like that. The Lord's anointed has already been told he's going to lose the kingdom. The Lord's anointed is not doing what he should be doing. And David says, I'm going to lift my hand. The Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. Steal the spear, steal the water jug. Those two things are symbolic. Number one, the spear of aggression and the water jug, a source of resource in a desert, in a wilderness place. I came across the saying that revenge may seem sweet, but it's bitter and it rots the hand that holds it. Revenge may seem sweet, but actually it's bitter and it rots the hand that holds it. David stole the spear. He didn't throw it back. It was a grace response. It was a form of forgiveness that is extending to Saul and it absorbs the offense and robs it of its power. Retaliation in any form, whether it's through gossiping about the person and discussing it over whatever the case may be, retaliation empowers the offense. And the reason David did it is that he actually placed value on Saul's life, but also on his own life. And it didn't matter what Saul's action was. He still allowed him to be a human being deserving of forgiveness and of grace and of mercy. He says, 1 Samuel 26, 24, 
As surely as I valued your life, he's now having a conversation across a distance, across a valley with King Saul. And Saul's saying, why did you spare me, basically? And he says, as surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. See, this is a principle of sowing and reaping. And David understood this kingdom principle where Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 2, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. For in the same way you judge, you will be judged. And the measure you used, it will be measured to you. So what measure do you want when you do something wrong, when you get it wrong, when you make a wrong or a sinful choice and it hurts somebody else. What, what do you want measured to you? Mercy, grace, or do you want vengeance and retaliation? Just very briefly, just to help us, forgiving is not forgetting and it's not minimizing what was done. It's not forgetting and it's not minimizing. Forgiveness is not the restoration of trust. In fact, in the story you will read, Saul says, come back. And David doesn't go back to the palace It's because he doesn't trust Saul. So forgiveness is not necessarily retrusting. That's a different thing. And so sometimes when you forgive, you still have to create boundaries for the relationship. And forgiveness is my responsibility, but reconciliation is ours. What I'm saying, you can't reconcile something if the other person is not coming to the party, if they're ignoring you, if they're not responding, if whatever. But forgiveness is my responsibility. Reconciliation is our responsibility. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's a decision. And often one that you have to repeat daily as you, you just have to get your heart and your mind aligned with your choice. So who's whispering in your ear? Is it the enemy saying, take vengeance? He has a gap. He has a point where you can get back at them. Or is it the Holy Spirit? Because Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 and following, and do not grieve, do not wound the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, he's about to tell us. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ, just as in Christ, sorry, God forgave you. Now that's a passage of scripture worth reading and reflecting on and saying, Holy Spirit, get this into my heart. Help this to be my choice. Even if I have to wrestle with my emotions and my thinking to get to this place where I forgive as freely as God forgave me in Christ. You see, David is said to be a man after God's own heart. In fact, the book of Acts records that for this very reason, God removed Saul eventually from the, Saul, from the throne and he made David king. 
and God testified concerning David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything I want him to do. Now, David was far from perfect. He committed adultery, murder. He made some wrong choices, some bad choices. But he kept bringing his heart back to God and saying, God, help me. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit. I need the voice, the leading of the Holy Spirit to help me respond rather than react. Well, what is the heart of our Heavenly Father? If David is a man after his own heart, I'm sure you can already draw some things from the story. What did God do with us when we were rebellious and sinful and turned our backs on him? God wrapped himself in flesh, subjected himself to human suffering, pain, rejection, betrayal, while we were still powerless, ungodly sinners and actually his enemies. That's what the Bible calls us before we came to choose Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. And if you haven't made that choice yet, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that as I conclude this message in a few moments. Listen to how the Apostle Paul explained human rebellion against God in Romans 5, verse 6 to 10. When we were still powerless, weak, unable to save ourselves, Christ died for the ungodly. You may not like to be called that, weak or ungodly, but that's what we were before an almighty, holy God. And Christ demonstrated, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more by the resurrection power is Paul's conclusion. But notice in that passage, he calls us weak or powerless, ungodly, sinners and his enemies. And in all of those things, God still reached out to us for reconciliation, to extend grace and forgiveness. That's the heart of God. It seemed amazing to me as David stole the spear rather than throwing the spear that while Jesus hung on the cross, it was a spear that was thrust into him. John records this and one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear. And in a sense, in our lostness, in our sinfulness, in our ungodliness, in our brokenness, we flung a spear at Jesus. It was our sin that nailed him to the cross. And while there, he was mocked, jeered, reviled, and his pain and suffering was actually celebrated by those who stood around. And did Jesus fling a spear back? He said he could have called a myriad of angels to come and deliver him and wipe out those who mocked and opposed and humiliated him and wounded him. But instead from the cross, he speaks these words that echo down through time to your life and mine today. Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. 
You see, forgiveness destroys the work of our real enemy, the devil. He's whispering, take vengeance, gossip, humiliate the person. The Holy Spirit's saying, no, get rid of that and begin to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. I'm not saying it's easy and you'll only do it in the power of God's grace and the power of His Holy Spirit. But it's forgiveness that destroys the power of the enemy. Colossians 2 verse 14, it says that he, speaking of Jesus, cancelled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. It's like God could have flung spear after spear of accusation, of condemnation, of judgment against us because we were guilty. But instead, he took all of those things and nailed it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. You see, it's coming to the cross, recognizing what Jesus did by taking on our sin, our pain, our suffering and dying in our place that you find grace and forgiveness, that mercy is extended to you. It's already been accomplished for you. It's already been achieved by Jesus in all that He did on the cross. But the question is, have you accessed it? Accessed it? Have you taken the opportunity to say yes to Jesus? I need forgiveness. I need all my sins nailed, that were nailed to your cross, to be washed clean by the blood that was shed on the cross. <music> 